You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Crippled Content Creations and Podcast Jukebox present Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. My name is Andrew Gerza. I am your disabled dicksmith, your disabled dreamboat, and everything in between. Let's shine a bright light on sex, disability, and all the things in between that right here on a brand new episode. Get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and let's get started. So you've heard me say over the last few weeks that I want to change the format of the show just a little bit to tweak things to make it a little bit more disability-centric rather than just sex and disability-centric. And so I'm looking for more experiences around disability that you want me to talk about, things that we don't talk about. Somebody the other day when I was recording an episode said, you know, your show, Disability After Dark, could mean all the things we need to shine a light on around disability. And I was like, that's a cool idea. So that's kind of the angle of the show. This also means that we can expand our Minnesota ideas to talk about anything around disability. So this means if you have an experience of disability as a disabled person and you want to write me in a letter and you want to hear me read that letter back to you in hilarious fashion or offer advice, we can do it as a Minnesota. You can send the Minnesotes to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Write me anything about your disabled experience. Also, if you're not disabled and you have questions you want me to answer, I'm happy to do that too. So I want to just expand all this stuff into more content for you. So let's talk more about disability on Disability After Dark. Just want to give a brief shout out to a new Patreon subscriber, Adam Martin. They spell their name A-D apostrophe M, which I thought was really cool. And I like that. And I think that's a really awesome way to spell your name. Uh, that's cool. And if that's, that is, that is a cultural thing, I want to hear more about that because that's awesome and I support that. So thank you, Adam Martin, for pledging $1 a month to keep this show going. It means a lot. And, uh... I appreciate it. And this means, Adam, that you get the show one day early. So the show comes out on Thursdays at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you get the show Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on 
the patreon.com slash disability after dark feed which you can put into your favorite podcast catcher so that's cool uh also you get a weird shout out like i just gave you so thanks for pledging and if you out there listening want to pledge to the show any denomination is fine you can go to patreon.com slash disability after dark i don't really do major rewards and stuff like that because I don't want to keep anything behind a paywall, but your support to keep this show going about disability and sexuality and everything in between is super important. Thank you so much. On today's show, I'm continuing the series, What Would Happen If You Became Disabled Tomorrow, where I talk to non-disabled people and I ask them what would happen to their lives and what they think about when they think about disability and I have a guest today that I never thought in a million years that I would get on this show and I just want to share with you who it is and I'm so excited for you to hear this interview I cannot wait so let me tell you all about it. Today I sit down with longtime sex columnist and podcaster Dan Savage of the Savage Loves podcast, and I. This was an interview that I never thought I would get. He DM'd me on Twitter like a year and a bit ago, saying I have a caller that called that called my show, and I want to give him some advice. And I'm wondering if you would want to give me advice to give to him. And I was like, that I couldn't believe it. I remember sitting somewhere and getting this email, this DM from Dan Savage, and being like, whoa. And as a gay man as a queer man who's like really really well up on queer male culture to get a dm from dan savage was like what the fuck is happening this is i don't believe this so he dm me and i said of course i'll come on your show yes please and i was terrified to do it if you listen back to that episode where i i guessed there i was the most terrified to talk to him because he he was somebody who i really looked up to and he's a gay male celebrity in a lot of ways for me and it just was like oh no I'm terrified and then he asked me a few months ago to write some advice for his column which I was again honored to do and I thought just randomly I was like you know what I'm gonna flip the script I'm gonna email him and just ask him if he would come on the show and interrogate the question what would happen to you if you became disabled tomorrow and he did graciously he wrote back and said, of course, I'd like to. Let's have a chat about it. And you'll hear in the episode, he says that he was hesitant to come on because he was afraid that he was going to put his foot in his mouth. And you hear me say, you know, we joke about it because I say to him, I kind of hope you do because I want to interrogate some of your feelings about disability and ableism and all that stuff. And I want to interrogate that with you. And we just had a really good chat. And actually what I learned from talking with Dan was that we in the queer male community have so much in common around rejection, around how we feel about our bodies, around the male gaze, all that stuff is so similar when it comes to disability and we need to talk about it more within these communities together. So I love this conversation. We talk about it a lot more too. Uh, we talk about how Dan's sex life would change, his relationship with his partner might change or not change. All this stuff comes into light, but I love doing these interviews, and I'm excited to share this one with you. So, without further ado, here's my interview with a podcaster and columnist, Dan Savage, where I ask him the question, what would happen if you became disabled tomorrow, right now on Disability After Dark?
Dan Savage. Hello. Welcome to Disability After Dark. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's uh, it's good to be on your podcast for a change. I've it, enjoyed having you on mine. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Yeah, this is. I was really excited when I got your email a few months ago saying you would agree because I was like, wow, that that'll be a, a nice change. And I think you're the biggest celebrity I've had on the show yet. So, <laughs> well, that's setting the celebrity bar pretty low. Kind of digging a trench <laughs> in the ground and laying the bar in it. But okay, hopefully uh, you'll uh, have bigger ones uh, soon. I mean. I mean, you're a pretty big name. When I told some people that you were coming on, they're like, "Wow, you got Dan Savage!" Like, yeah, I did. So that's awesome. Um, but for people who don't know who you are, because some people I, I mentioned you were coming on, and they were like, "Who?" and I was like, "Oh, that's weird." <laughs> so, um, so don't feel too bad. You're not that much of a celebrity yet, apparently, for some of us. But for those who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Dan Savage. I have for the last 28-ish years written Savage Love, which is a widely syndicated sex advice column that started originated here at, at the stranger in seattle and is in about 70 or 80 papers all over the world including italy which is a very weird thing my column runs in italian over there and for the last decade i've hosted the savage love cast uh which is a popular sex and relationship advice podcast i've also written six or seven books um and done a bunch of other stuff <laughs> and i'm i'm too catholic for this uh you know, heaping praise on myself or, or uh, rattling off my resume like this makes me embarrassed. I'm Jewish too, so I understand. I understand all about like the like the guilt of like, oh no, I can't enjoy this. <laughs> I get it. Um, so, so again, thank you so much for being here today. And do you identify as somebody with a disability? I don't. Um, I mean, no, I don't. I you know, I think there are some folks out there uh, who might reach for it uh but but i uh i don't that was a really awkward answer to a really simple question it so was super awkward was... but i kind of kind of i'm kind of here for it it's all right <laughs> <laughs> this show's all about being awkward together as we talk about sex and disability which is an awkward topic for a lot of people so i, I invited you on the show today because i've been doing a series with a bunch of non-disabled gay men to ask them about what they how they think they would feel if they were to encounter disability tomorrow. And by that, I mean, let's say they were to wake up one day, one morning, and all of a sudden be disabled. So to be a wheelchair user, to have a mobility issue, to have some something that would change the way they viewed their sexuality or their sense of self or their sense of masculinity or their sense of who they were, just to kind of get people thinking about disability more readily. Because I think in queer communities as I've said on, as we've talked about before, there's so much ableism that we encounter. And I think a lot of it is because queer men and gay men aren't really tasked with thinking about disability. And so I wanted to kind of create this, this safe little bubble where we could have these conversations around disability and sexuality with, with this community in a way that was safe and comfortable and maybe people look at their own ideas around disability more. It's kind of ironic uh, that, you know, a lot of gay men don't think about disability. They don't encounter disability. A lot of, as you pointed out on Twitter and other places, a lot of queer spaces are not accessible. Paradoxically or ironically, like a lot of the queer disabled or gay male disabled people that I've known, I met in gay bars at a time when there were more gay bars, um, at a time when more of gay life kind of revolved around the bars. Uh, and, and going out and physically entering their, these queer spaces. 
And it was really in gay bars in Madison, Wisconsin, um, where I lived in my very early 20s, uh, and gay bars here in Seattle when I lived, moved here in my mid-20s, where I encountered uh, disabled gay men. Uh, in a way now that I think with how people sort and filter with apps and are less likely to go out, uh, they're less likely, gay men, myself included, less likely to interact with or encounter disabled guys. So whereas, you know, a lot of uh, gay bars, a lot of queer spaces aren't accessible, others were accessible. And yeah. that's where I met uh, queer disabled men. Um, and I think now if I were a young gay man today and, uh, you know, just on Grindr, just on the apps and prone to the kind of uh, prejudices or assumptions or untested or unscrutinized biases, that I might be less likely to encounter uh, queer disabled men than I was. And I didn't encounter many, but I encountered some uh, in my early 20s. Yeah, so I think what you're saying is, and I think I agree with you, like, because back in, back before all these apps, we all of us, whether we're disabled or not, we're forced to go out to meet somebody. It forced all of us to be in the same space, whether we were disabled or not, or people of color or not. We were forced to be in the same space, so it kind of forced us to confront our biases more readily. And there's some nostalgia for that time, but that wasn't always pleasant. You know, there was a lot of uh, misapprehension. There was a lot of people not being particularly kind to each other. You know, people talk about Today, people complain about the ways in which folks on apps will quickly shut each other down or ignore each other and pine for the days when we were all in the bars and having to interact and make eye contact. People were pretty cruel in bars and shut each other down in, in similar ways. And people who don't have much experience with what that sort of era of uh, gay life and queer space <laughs> like um, sometimes have rose-colored glasses when they look back at the bars. The bars were often meat markets, and people were as coldly assessed and coldly dismissed in a bar, even if everybody had to be in that bar, uh, as they are today on the apps. Yeah, and I, back at like 15 years ago when I was going to bars, when I was in my 20s going to bars, like this, I had the same experience. Like I would go, to, I would go into my bar every. every Friday and Saturday, I would go to the bar as a disabled queer person trying to just do what everyone else was doing. And I would, like you say, be really, really coldly, quickly assessed. And that was it. So I never felt at home there. But it's almost comforting to know that, like, even if I wasn't disabled, that assessment would still be happening. Honest to God, and I'm not equating our experience, and I know that disabled people aren't seen as sexual, often aren't seen at all, kind of pixelated out of the picture uh, in spaces but i never felt comfortable in gay bars i often felt uh dismissed and and invisible myself in gay bars um i used to joke you know after i met terry a billion years ago that what i was looking for in the gay bars was somebody i never had to go to a gay bar ever again <laughs> isn't that the dream i think that's the unicorn we're all searching for but but unlike some gay men my age you know i'm 50 fucking four years old uh, I'm likelier to go into a gay bar now and feel comfortable in, in a gay bar now than I was when I was 24 years old. Uh, and I don't know if that's just I'm more comfortable in my own skin. I don't know if that's because I'm not looking and, and so not, you know, in the <laughs> rat race or cock race or whatever, <laughs> um, that I can just kind of relax. And, you know, there's a certain invisibility uh, with, that comes with age that is almost I've experienced as kind of a relief. 
Yeah, and I think I think that weirdly also parallels the disability experience sort of too. Like once once you get over, and it, this happens to me all the time, where I or have moments where I get over my own stuff and get over my wanting to look all the time for something and just enjoy who I am as a as a disabled queer person and I don't give a fuck. And mm-hmm. it seems to be I seem to relax much more into that. But it takes getting to that place where I can be relaxed about it is can be really tough. Yeah. And I don't think straight people are particularly comfortable in straight bars where everyone's trying to pick each other up either. I don't think it's really unique to the queer, disabled or non-disabled experience to feel awkward and on, you know, just awkward uh, in a space where people are making sexual judgments about each other, about each other's desirability. Uh, to, to put yourself up on that um, platform and ask a room full of strangers to judge you in that way. I, I don't think there's much of that that the human spirit can take before it carves a chunk out of you. No, I agree. I think I think that really looking at it, like now that you say it like that, I'm kind of looking at the wider picture and seeing how much commonality like all of us have, whether we're disabled or, or not, in that feeling of uncomfortableness. But it feels so, I think for me as somebody who's doubly marginalized, it just feels so much more like point pointed because absolutely in no way am i attempting to minimize your double marginalization um and it was certainly the experience of you know the the handful of queer disabled guys i got to know um particularly at this bar in madison that doesn't exist anymore called rods um which was the kind of gay bar that really doesn't exist anymore it was a leather bar but it was sort of a levi leather bar and it was just a chill space and a hangout space where people sat on bar stools or gathered around tables and talked uh, and it wasn't the pickup joint that the bar upstairs was. Um, there was kind of a dance club upstairs that was not accessible at all. Uh, and that was where you went if you were, you know, hustling for dick. Not professionally, but just looking for <laughs> uh, where you went when you just didn't want to be a part of that. I mean, Rod sounds like the great, it sounds like an awesome disability bar for people, for anybody <laughs> with like spinal Who's fusion stuff. It sounds great. It was a good space. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember if there was a ramp or something. It was a long time ago. Um, but I do recall people uh, in chairs, in wheelchairs, being in rods. I mean, I just think it's funny because I have rods in my spine. So I think, like, <laughs> going to a bar called Rods, just there's so many, there's so many innuendos there that I would want to play with. I love it. Sometimes I have rods in my throat, so. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> um, so I want to kind of jump into the questions that I have for you as a non-disabled gay man. I'm curious, how do you think, like, so let's say that tomorrow you woke up in disability, you encountered it in some way in, in your body. How do you think you would, let's say you were a wheelchair user, how do you think you would feel about that? Am I allowed to say not great, at least initially. Yeah, that, I mean, you totally are. That's kind of what I want to interrogate with you. That would be a, a difficult adjustment for me. Um, I've always been really physically active and in a way kind of, you know, like a lot of gay kids, solo physical activities, like I like snowboarding. I don't like team sports. I like riding a bike. I walk everywhere. And it would really impact the way I move through the world and the way I live my life and the way I inhabit my body. Um if I were to wake up disabled, I have contemplated it. And again, this is like, I feel awkward talking with you about it. And I, you know, I realize that this is, um, 
you know, this is a, a negative spin on something that doesn't have to be viewed negatively and or experienced negatively after I, I think you make that difficult adjustment, which it would be for me. You know, I have this thing that in my family we jokingly call worst case scenario disorder, which is uh, my mother had it and gave it to me. My mother, if you called the house, would answer the phone not with hello, but with what's wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> and it kind of functions as like an, a protective amulet, worst case scenario disorder, where if you just obsess about the, the, the worst thing that can happen, then it won't happen. You know, you can't get on a plane without picturing it crashing. Once you've pictured it crashing, really invested in that mental image, then it won't crash. It's kind of the Catholic hocus pocus. <laughs> so, you know, have I thought about uh, becoming disabled? Yeah, I have thought about, uh, you know, breaking my back on a on a mountain while I'm snowboarding or breaking my neck. I have thought about, you know, getting into a car accident. Uh, I never learned how to drive because. Uh, I'm afraid of cars. <laughs> Me too, though. So I get it. And, you know, I don't like being in cars. And worst case scenario disorder in a car is terrible because you're always looking around at every other car coming at you going, <laughs> that one's going to hit me, that one's going to hit me. Um, and so I've certainly thought about it. And, you know, I haven't thought, well, that would be great. I've thought that would be awful. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, you know, the people that I've talked to, and I, I pose this question, do they all say the same the same exact thing as you have said? They they get really nervous by the question because they don't first of all, they know that I'm disabled, they don't want to offend me. So they're like, Oh no, but which but I'm I'm I kind of enjoy that it made you uncomfortable because it means that we need to talk about it and it means that it's a question that is of course it's scary because the only narratives you have around disability are like, Oh no, accident, oh no, death. Like so if I can totally see where you're coming from there. Yeah. And I'm, you know, acutely aware that disability is in anyone, anyone who's not currently disabled is in anyone's future, potentially. Um, shit happens. Medical shit happens. Ac accidents happen. You know, one of the re reasons we should, able-bodied people should fight for a world that's just to disabled people is we are all potentially future disabled people. I mean... Yeah, and if you're not disabled, you're going to be old, which basically is like right next to disability. So, <laughs> I think that's ageist, but okay. Like, I'm the only one in this conversation, so I can say that. <laughs> all right, all right, that's fair. Um, so, do you think, other than other than it being kind of an adjustment and kind of like an initial like not a great thing, do you think you would feel like how do you think your body would feel? Like you you mentioned a minute ago, you were you run and walk everywhere. Like, how do you think that would change? It would change in a big way, you know, um, physical movement and exercise, uh, is my antidepressant. You know, if I don't go to the gym, if I don't, you know, go for a long walk or, you know, a long ass bike ride, um, I start to get sort of moody, sour, depressed, uh, and down, you know, which is not to say that somebody with a disability can't exercise, can't get out there, can't do things. I see people, uh, on ski hills who are disabled and um, skiing down the mountain. So I know that it's not impossible to be physically active. I'm wor I would worry that the adjustment as I learn to be physically active in new and different ways would be long and grueling. And I'd wind up on Prozac like my mama. I mean, and, and you're right. And also because like the, the guy you see on the ski hill may not have the same level of disability that you could acquire. So, so you know, a lot of us can't work out because, and I should say also that I 
I was born with my disability, so this whole hypothetical that I've that I've thrown at you is not my experience. But you know, as somebody with a congenital disability, I can't go to the, I can't just go to the gym and work out because my body doesn't fit those machines. I can't physically use them. So I could see how for you, let's say you woke up in a body that you were born disabled in. I like that the idea of going to work out is just really it's tough because a lot of stuff is not accessible for us in the gym. You know, and it's not so much, you know, maybe the compensatory, I'm not mispronouncing that word or botching it, um, thing would be movement. You know, I'm, I'm always moving and doing and I'm kind of a workaholic. And maybe, you know, when I project myself into this experience and think about it, a lot of like the biking or the the working out at the gym could be replaced by just the freedom to move through space, which would require living in a community that was accessible or, you know, buses and subways and streets were, uh, usable by disabled people. If I did end up in a chair, uh, and I could, you know, the, the ability to just get around, um, could maybe take the place of some of the other kind of, you know, I'm not like an obsessive exerciser, um, and I certainly don't have the body of an excessive exerciser, but I'm always moving, and maybe there is a way to, to keep moving even if I moved differently. I mean, it would it would also depend on like the level, like let's just pretend, let's pretend that it was like paralysis or something, it would depend on the level of paralysis, it would depend on like what, there's so many variables, but I do think, and also just moving around the world, whether you're a wheelchair user or like whether you have other types of disabilities, it's so inaccessible that that I think like your thoughts on like a run and things would totally change. You'd have to find completely different accessible ways to do things, which is a bummer because like right now you can go outside and you can start a run, whereas with a disability you'd have to be like, okay, where's the steepest hill? How do I get my chair on this place? What like there's so many variables that by the time you go to work, you go to do that movement you're like i'm too tired i don't want to do it anymore <laughs> yeah it's it's something to think about there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of like there's so many obstacles to just that one idea of just going for a run as a wheelchair or going for a stroll as a wheelchair user just there's so many obstacles but i, I also wanted to know so so look, okay let's say you were a wheelchair user tomorrow how do you think your views on sex and sexuality would change I well, I, I can't imagine that my sort of my, you know, zoomed out 10,000 foot, 30,000 foot views on sex or sexuality would change. Um, you know, my views on sex and sexuality are whatever two or more people want to do consensually, um, even if what they want to do is uh, is unappealing to other people or seems crazy to someone who's not involved, they should be able to do it um, and not be judged or shamed for it. Uh, and I've often, you know, I've always felt that you are what you bring, um, you know, wherever you go, there you are and you have to learn. And that was a process for me to learn and love and accept myself uh, as I am. And I don't think that would necessarily change. Um, but, you know, my sexual practices might change, um, but my attitudes uh, and, and ideas about sex, I don't think would change. Okay. Can we kind of unpack the possible changes in your sexual practices <laughs> sure um what would you like to know <laughs> um 
I don't know how graphic you want. I mean, you can kill as graphic as you want, but like, I will, I will slowly lob you the question. Um, how do you think your sexual practices would change? Uh, um, yeah, uh, I don't know. It depends on what, you know, if I were to become disabled, what my disability was, I'm partnered and I'm long married to, to Terry. And speaking of Terry, when I first met him 25 years ago and I was writing this column and occasionally writing about my sex life, he said, you can write about your sex life or have sex with me, but not both. <laughs> and I stopped awesome. writing my sex life. So sometimes it's awkward for me to talk about my sex life. Cause I don't want to make my husband upset. Yeah. Um, but you know, we, for 25 years and 20 of those years, non-monogamous, we've managed to accommodate each other and, and make it work. Uh, and I imagine we would still take that approach. You know, a lot of couples at our stage in 25 years, adult children that we raised together, um, are barely having sex with each other or anyone else. And we still have a, a great and active sex life in part because I think we are non-monogamous. Um, you know, when non-monogamy ends a relationship, everybody hears about it and blames it. And when non-monogamy strengthens a relationship and helps to preserve it, uh, never gets the credit it deserves. Um, you know, I think if I were suddenly disabled, uh, I would want to have the sex that I was capable of having with Terry. And I think that he would want to have that sex with me, but I would also want him to have all the kinds of sex he might want to have, including sex that I might not be capable of having anymore um, with others because I wouldn't want you know I don't want him to to be deprived now uh, while I'm able-bodied of of the variety of experiences out there and I think if I was uh, disabled uh, and less able to um, to to engage in all the different sorts of crazy things we like to do with each other uh, I don't think that that would change I you know I've always had um, the ability to really enjoy his experiences that he has with other people. And here I'm going to get in trouble for saying this into a microphone. Um, and I don't think that would change unless, you know, I was so angry or resentful that my feelings curdled into something smaller, more selfish. Uh, but knowing me and knowing marijuana, I don't think that would happen. <laughs> All right, I just learned so much about Dan Savage right in that in that <laughs> in that little blurb there. Thank you. Well, no, that was that's really important though because I think you you brought up a lot of, of things that I and I think that if I ever get a long term partner, which at this point is like yeah, right, that's not happening. I'm just gonna fuck around and get mine when I want to. But if I ever were to, I would want them to. I'd want them to experience the sex they want with other people that I couldn't provide. And I think for me, that idea of letting someone go do that, I would have to get over a lot of jealousy because jealousy rooted, I think, in ableism because like, oh, you're gonna go with that able-bodied person and I can't do that for you. But it mm -hmm. would be learning to like, let that go. And I think that's important to, to, to let that go, particularly in the context of a, uh, an open relationship. Um, you know, one of the reasons we have an open relationship is there are some things that I like that Terry doesn't and vice versa. Some things that I'm uh, not capable of <laughs> uh, and vice versa. 
uh, even in our current able-bodied state. Uh, and I don't want him to go without those things. And I take, you know, the poly people have this word that I, I kind of don't like this word, but there's no better word for it called compersion, um, which is, you know, taking, you know, finding joy in your partner's pleasure in someone else. Uh, and I, I experience compersion in a kind of overwhelming way. Like Terry's happiness makes me happy. And I don't think that would change. Uh, but I couldn't say, I mean, I, I like to think that that wouldn't change if I were disabled, um, and incapable of, you know, doing some of the things for Terry that I do now. And, uh, but I don't think it, I, I don't think it would because I've always taken such vicarious pleasure in Terry's pleasure. And I think that's, that's such a great, like I, as I, I am often the only disabled partner in the room when I have like group sex or when I'm when I, I have a, a threesome recently and I was the only disabled person in the room um, and I took pleasure in them pleasuring each other and there was something really cool about that because I couldn't engage in that part of it but I was there so I did feel a sense of like okay this is good the, I'm mm -hmm. still here I'm still included I'm not doing the exact thing, but I'm still in the room. Yeah, I've described this to some people and they've gone, oh yeah, what's not to like? It's kind of like live action porn. And it's like, no, it's not really like that. It's not a hologram. Um, like, I love Terry and I want him to be happy and seeing him happy makes me love him all the more and feel happy about us. It's not just like, you know, there are two hot guys fucking. It's, you know, that's my husband and look how joyful he is at this <laughs> <laughs> do you think he would and I, we talked about this in an earlier email when we were setting this up do you think that you that he would have any hesitation about let's say something happened to you and you became a wheelchair user tomorrow do you think he would stay with you you know i think so but who knows you, you can never know how someone's gonna react or what they're gonna do um you know sometimes you're together with somebody for a very long time and one of you gets very ill and that's the end of the relationship. Um, the other person can't handle it, can't hack it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or sometimes, you know, the person who's ill becomes so angry and takes it out on their partner that their partner for their own sanity and physical health and safety has to leave. And then everyone looks at that and thinks, Oh my God, the, you know, they abandoned their sick partner. They're a monster. But from the inside, you know, that can look very different. Yeah, and there are a lot of cases where, you know, and I have been I have been the person sometimes, not with partners, but just in, in life with family members and things. I've been the one that was the abusive party and had to, like, step back and be like, oh, no, I fucked up, sorry. So I do think there is some merit when, when non-disabled partners say, you know what, this is a lot. I need to, I need to figure uh, this out. I mean, I like to think that if I were disabled, there would be that rough period of adjustment and then I would learn to live and love my life uh, and, and find joy again in my life and my relationship. But, you know, if I was furiously angry and emotionally abusive to Terry and taking it out on him and, and never got better, I would hope he would leave me. I don't wouldn't want that for him if I became just furiously angry all the time and, and, and monstrous to him. Uh, and I hope I wouldn't do that. But again, these are, these are things you can't, you can't predict how you would react. Yeah. You can't yeah. predict how your spouse would react. And 
you know, saying emphatically, it'll be perfect, I will be happy, we will survive this, just feels like whistling past a very densely populated graveyard. And you have to show some humility and grace and say, you know, I can't know. I hope this, but I can't know that. And I can tell you that as somebody living with a disability, I'm angry all the time. That's why I do what I do, because I wanted to turn that anger into something tangible and something that didn't kill me, but made me made me feel like I could do something with it. So that's why I, that's really why I started the, this podcast, why I started doing activism, because I was like, I need to channel this anger into something real or it's going to hurt me. So... Well, it's productive use of uh, of anger. I mean, the entire, every movement for social justice, the gay rights movement, the women's suffragette movement, the African-American civil rights movement, um, all of them have been fueled by rage. Appropriately and productively channeled, outward directed instead of inward directed to be productive and not destructive. And so I think that if you, I would hope, and so let's jump into a question about that. So you do a lot of work and you do a lot of work around sexuality sexuality generally how do you think having a disability or even a chronic illness would change the work you do oh my gosh i don't know (laughs) these are such difficult questions um how would it change if i was less able to work um if it was more difficult to type i'd have to relearn how to work again i don't think that you know, after I'm 54 years old, I've lived a long time in my body. Um, and I, and I like to think that if I became disabled in in a profound way, um, I wouldn't suddenly have an epiphany and realize everything I'd ever said or done was a lie and, and it would all change. I, I hope that my observations or insights have some validity and are rooted not just in my personal subjective experience but in some sort of observed objective ish reality but again i i can't know you know how do i think it would change the way i work i don't you know i'm not one of those sex writers who goes out and has a ton of sex and writes about it or goes to sex clubs or goes and does you know kooky crazy things uh, and then um you know writes personal essays uh, about it so you know, mostly what I do is get letters from people asking me what I think they should do and me telling them what I think they should do. <laughs> I could dictate those responses. So long as I can run my mouth, I can do my job. Um, I say that about sex too. As long as I can use my mouth, I'm pretty good. <laughs> so, I mean, and I think, you, I think you could. I mean, obviously you could totally still work. I think though that given what you do, it would all disability. Let's say again. Let's say you were a wheelchair user. Let's use that example again. It would change. I think the the scope of your column and the scope of what you talk about because well, it's a different experience. And mm-hmm. it, it, I think it would. It would. It would just have to. It would have to change. And I think it would be a totally different column. But I think it would be. It would be really, really kind of cool to see that. I, I think it would change my baseline assumptions. And unexamined assumptions, perhaps. Um, but in a way, I don't think it would change a lot of my conclusions. You know, when I say assumptions, I get a letter and I don't, and my automatic thought is, you know, I don't think this could be from someone who has physical challenges that they didn't detail and that might impact my advice or make my advice useless. Uh, you know, I only know what people tell me, but, you know, in the same way that 
heterosexual is the default assumption unless somebody opens their mouth and says that they're queer. Able is the default assumption unless somebody opens their mouth and says that they're disabled. Yeah. Um, and we in Queerland are like, don't make these assumptions about people. Uh, you know, don't assume people are straight, but we're an assumption-making, sorting species. We make assumptions based on probability and likelihood, and most people are straight. It's not an unreasonable assumption. Yeah. Uh, but a huge percentage of people, a much greater percentage of people that are queer are disabled, and yet we don't examine that assumption. I mean, there's, like, most of the queer people that I know have chronic illness, have disability, have emotional disabilities have intellectual disabilities so we're out there and i just don't think we talk about it enough and i don't think particularly why i wanted to invite you on is because we don't talk about enough of this stuff in in queer male able-bodied white spaces and i think that we need to really examine that in the nicest possible way in a way that feels safe and comfy to do but also to be like hey we're here don't forget we exist and so that's kind of why i wanted to that was my hope with that with these fun hypothetical questions today hit me with another one <laughs> um another one that, so so all right we talked about kind of earlier how the community would treat you the how the community treats you now when you go into a bar they're you know we're really quick to assess am i gonna fuck you yes or no and it, if it's no then we move on how do you think being a wheelchair user would change your community involvement well i never felt particularly fuckable um at any stage of my life <laughs> i feel that so hard i get that i get that feeling very much so i i've never moved through you know gay bars or spaces with supreme confidence in my own desirability uh i'm desperately insecure uh i wouldn't um you know i can't talk to people i think are attractive very easily i'm super awkward I only spoke to Terry the night we met because I was telling someone else he was hot and then he like walked up to us to get his coat, <laughs> coat check girl, gingivitis, a drag queen who I'd been saying, look at that guy with the lips and the hips and the hair. I was like, Tell him. And I told him, so I had to speak to him. I would never in a million years have spoken to Terry uh, if it hadn't been for Ginger forcing me to tell him what I'd been telling her. Um, you know, I'm uncomfortable with nudity my own particularly uh and there's that feeling when you're in a gay bar where people are taking your clothes off with their eyes and you know guessing at what's underneath your clothes and wanting and then making a judgment and just being subjected to that male gaze that women are acutely conscious of and familiar with and oppressed by i don't find that pleasant um and and so you know i'm sure i got I'll get more, you know, particularly at your age, you're a lot younger than I am. You know, if we were the same age and walked into and rolled into a bar together, I imagine I would get more like eye contact than you would. Um, but I don't think I would be comfortable still uh, in that space. Like I said, like all I wanted to do was meet somebody in a gay bar. I never had to go to a gay bar with. <laughs> I feel two things came up for me when you were, when you were talking there and I was listening and I thought, you know, you said you don't like your nudity, your own nudity. And I, I just thought, you know, being disabled, we are forced, at least in my disabled body, my disabled experience is to be undressed by people mm. every day, every day, all the time. And have your most private moments, like, on display for other people to be a part of. How do you think that 
Dan Savage would would handle that? Not well. Um, <laughs> with a lot of fucking pot edibles all day long, at least at first. Yeah. So what you're saying is, the next time I have to shit in front of my character, I should just get, I should just eat a pot out of all enemy pies. Well, I that's what I would have to do. We're talking about how I would react. <laughs> um, you know, I I just had surgery on my shoulder uh, in August of last year, and um, it's a it's a dicey surgery, uh, the rotator cuff reattachment, and um, you're really vulnerable after. I'm not comparing that to your disability. Um, but I couldn't go anywhere in the house by myself because if I fell, it would have been a disaster. And I was hopped up on opioids, which I'd never really taken before, but it was the only thing that could, uh, dull the pain, which was extraordinary. Um, and I was helpless and dependent on, uh, both Terry and his boyfriend, um, for everything for, for a week, for, for two weeks. Um, and of course, it's no way comparable to your experience. No, but, but it, is, it is comparable in that, like, when you got to pee and someone helps you, you got to <laughs> figure like it. Is, so, like, don't feel nervous about about trying to compare because I understand. Like, there are similarities. If I have surgery or not, I still need somebody to like wipe my ass. So, so I did inhabit that for a little bit, and you know, the the vulnerability of it. Um, but, but by the time I was getting used to being helped, the, the, the period of time that I needed that help was over. Um, and so maybe that's something I could get used to in time. Uh, maybe that's something in the future I will have to get used to because you never know. Uh, but that was difficult for me. And I imagine that if it happened to me suddenly, if I broke my neck snowboarding, um, that that would be a, a really difficult adjustment. Yeah, I don't think you ever get used to that. I don't, like, I, again, I've inhabited this body for all 35 years of my life. And I gotta say, every morning when I have a stranger come in and wet my ass, I'm never like, oh, this is, I'm used to this. (laughs) Yep, this is what, yep, this is what's happening today. Like, you, it's tolerable, but it's never something you're like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, this is comfortable. (laughs) Crazy. Uh, yeah, I imagine not. Um, and yet, we're almost all of us destined, if we live long enough, to reach a place where somebody else is wiping our ass again. I mean, it's it is something that, which is why I think disability is so universal because it's it's going to go full circle. You're going to be there when you're young, and it's going to hopefully be there when you're old. But also, like, I find too, as a disabled person, when I like in the morning, sometimes I get a hard on, and I want to. I want to be alone with my heart, and I can't because I have to know that in 20 minutes someone's gonna be here. So like, there's this there's this sense of like trying to trying to find my trying to find time for my masculinity and my sense of manhood in these spaces that aren't that are technically I'm in my home, but it's not really my space because someone's yeah. gotta be there. And the and the lack of autonomy, or the you know the the the. the not loss of autonomy, but the lack of it your entire life. Yeah. Um, I imagine that's that's something you never get used to. And I mean, you you mentioned it earlier, like you, maybe you would get comfortable and you do reach weird plateaus of like, okay, this is what I have to deal with. Like, I'm going to deal with it. I think that's the disabled body's way of being like, okay, well, you don't have a choice. So you got to be happy or you're going to be sad your whole life. So you have to just get over it. But there are, there are definitely moments of where I wish that like, I could just hop out of bed 
and I could just like start my day. Like, I, like you said, you like to run a lot. I would love to be able to get up and just go run around, the, <laughs> go run around the block just to see what that would be like. I don't know what that would be like at all, but it would be. That's something that I crave because it's something that I've never done. I I feel for you. I wish that was possible for you. One day, maybe. Or not. Or maybe some hot muscle queen can carry me down the street. <laughs> I'm all right with either. You know, with VR technology, you could get a tactile sensory experience of it, even if you couldn't get a physical experience of it. Maybe that will be possible to, to simulate the experience for you at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I really hope so. I hope that... The, I hope that something it's like and it's funny because people are like as a disability activist i'm very wary to be like i don't to, i'm very wary to say things like i wish that i could walk but there are moments as a gay man where i wish that th that, that was possible for me and i like in the morning when i have a heart on and i want to be left alone in my house that's the moment where i wish that i could just be like no i don't need you right now go away i hear you the, those are those are you know private moments that i think you're deprived. We, yeah, that, and we that we take for granted our community. Like, there, like how many how many dudes on the internet right now have cameras that are set up just for when they want to jack off? Like, that's <laughs> a luxury that I that I. How do you do that? Like, what's <laughs> what? I don't even know how to do that. I, you you were trying to. I, we were trying to get me on Skype or at the beginning of this call. I couldn't even manage that. I mean, I'm sure one day somebody will teach you how to how to set up a campsite it could be a whole new stream of revenue for you it could be a whole new a whole new ball game for you um i'm such a late adopter of technology but that by the time that happens my ass will be being wiped by someone else because i'll be 95 <laughs> listen people, there there's a market for like geriatric <laughs> i'm sure there is i'm sure there is, there um, is there. so one of the things that i was really curious about this when we when we started this you you were really, I liked that you were, you took some time to like think about the question. When I first posed this to you, like when I came at you like two months ago and said, hey, do you want to do this with me? What was your first thought? Well, I'm worried about putting my foot in my mouth. I'm worried about unintentionally and not maliciously saying something offensive or that might wound uh, you or others of your listeners because this isn't something that I've talked about before or often or at all, really. Um, and there's just you know, this desire not to say something accidentally unwoke uh, about disability um, that would offend people who are disabled because that's the last thing I would want to do. And I, it's funny because as, as, the, as the producer of this like hypothetical world that I've created for these questions, I secretly hope that you say something, not, not to put your foot in your mouth, <laughs> but I, I'm secretly hoping you'll say something because like, I think that interrogation and that discomfort around ableism is so we're so afraid to go there that if we don't go there, when when we when something actually happens and someone is actually offended, we don't know what to do. Well, you know, one of my impulses after you know reading your questions and talking with you about it and having already agreed to it was, God, I wish I hadn't agreed to this, <laughs> because you know it'd be easier to, you know, I can't say the wrong thing if I don't say anything yeah. and I think that's often people's approach to difficult subjects you know particularly talking about other people's experiences of discrimination or oppression or marginalization that sometimes you know for fear of saying the wrong thing and getting dragged for it it's better to just to be silent but that silence doesn't help yeah 
but we live in a kind of social uh, media universe now where people are viciously attacked for saying the wrong thing out of ignorance, not malice. And that's inhibiting. And I, you know, just to own up to it, I was briefly inhibited. I was like, oh, my God, I'm doing this interview with Andrew. What if I say the wrong thing? Might be easier not to do the interview at all than to risk saying the wrong thing. But then I was like, that's cowardly and unfair. And Andrew's been so gracious with his time and coming on my podcast that that I owe it. I'm Catholic about it. I owe you. Well, I appreciate that. And I I think, you know, I think it's important for – gay men to realize and I've said this a, m- a million times on the show um, to realize that they can say the wrong thing it's how they react when somebody calls them in for saying the wrong thing I think also and I'll say this you know I'll probably get angry emails after I say this but whatever I think a lot of us in marginalized communities were so angry sometimes we lash out at the tiniest thing to the wrong person when we could just call or them in lash out at the people who are engaging with you Yeah. when it's the people who won't engage who are usually the bigger problem and usually less thoughtful, less willing to learn and grow. Yeah. And you do yeah. see it a lot on, you know, the fucking Twitter nightmare hell site. Oh my God, Twitter. Oh my God. <laughs> yep. You know, somebody uses the wrong word. They say, you know, I know, you know, I have good friends who are transgenders. Um, and they get endlessly dragged and mocked instead of, you know, given the the, the assumption of, of good intent and and corrected or or um, educated, and that just makes people clam up, and they'd rather they'd rather say nothing than risk getting uh, scorched again for accidentally unmaliciously saying the wrong thing. I really think malice is the thing we have to look out for, and weigh. Um, when we blow up at people <laughs> online and I, I say that as somebody who, you know, really has changed the way I function on the internet, um, particularly after reading John Ronson's book. So you've been publicly shamed, uh, that know, yet right. was prone to that too. Just the assumption of malice. Um, yeah, I think that I think I, that's destructive and I don't think that helps anybody's movement to uh, attack people who are trying and falling short. Because it's invariably the people who aren't trying who are the bigger problem. And yet the people who are trying are the ones who are in our crosshairs. Yeah. And I as and I'll say even my own activism, I've had to I've had to reevaluate over this last year some of the stuff that I posted and been like, Oh, I was really mad about that. Did I was I who who was I lashing out at? Was I mad at the Facebook world or was I mad at one thing and I was like putting it on people? So I have to like even I who am fiercely a disability activist have to like go back and be like, whoa, okay, let's reevaluate that for a second. Was I, were they hurting me by asking this or was I just hurt because I hear, I've heard it so many times? Yeah. And, you know, it was my experience. I, I came out as a teenager and 54 years old, so almost 40 fucking years ago. And one of the things that I remember was slapping a smile on my face and answering the same goddamn questions over and over and over and over and over again because 40 years ago particularly in high school i was the only gay person anybody knew um and so you know the example i always cite is which one's the woman i can't tell you the number of times when i was 17 years old 18 19 20 being asked that question by classmates by college roommates by family oh no 
And having and and I somehow had it in me to kind of patiently answer that question. <laughs> um, but you what know, is with, the patient answer to who's the woman? Uh, the patient answer is well, no one. Uh, who's the man when you get a blowjob? No one. Um, it's two men having sex. One person doesn't magically transform. The thing that I that helped with my family in particular was, you know, if you put a salt shaker next to a salt shaker, one of them doesn't turn into a pepper shaker. Wow, that was so, like, Midwestern. <laughs> I know, you have to bring it back to dinner and food and the table, and uh, somehow, you know, you put the kielbasa next to the kielbasa, and one of them doesn't turn into a pile of sauerkraut. Could have said that, too. I mean, that was a really nice um, <laughs> dick innuendo there, kielbasa. <laughs> I'm, I'm here Alec, for it. Alec <laughs> metaphor. Yeah. Um, uh, so tell me a little bit about the people that you, the disabled people that you met in the past, the experiences with those people, guys at the bar. I, I made good friends with a guy, this is dark, but with a guy named Tony, um, at, at, in Madison at Rods who, um, wound up being murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, <laughs> he was deaf, uh, and I had taken sign language in in college. I, I don't have it anymore. It's fallen away. Um, but I was roughly conversant at that time uh, in ASL, and so he and I got to be friendly at the bar and, and would and would sit and talk, and he would teach me more. And um, we saw each other a lot. I was in Rods a lot. Uh, and then one day he just wasn't around, and the rumor, you know, it was before Facebook, before Instagram, and social media wasn't easy just to know where everybody was at all the, t all the time. And the rumor went round that he just kind of got fed up with Madison and everyone in it and moved to Miami and didn't tell anybody. And then a few months later they found him in Jeffrey Dahmer's refrigerator. Oh. Uh, yeah. It was very fucking awful. Um, and he was, he was a lovely guy. Um, you know, the disabled people that I was intimate with before, you know, I got married um, were, uh, was a, a deaf guy, a different deaf guy here in, in Seattle. Uh, but I, ne I was never, you know, I never got with anybody who was um, in a wheelchair or disabled in some more profound way. And, you know, deaf is pretty profoundly disabled. Um, but, but you mean in a more marked way, like a more, yeah. I mean, apparent way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that tip. That first part of the story took a really that was that took a turn that I did not <laughs> that I was not expecting. Sorry, um, Bob. Wow, I mean it sparked my love of like murder podcasts again. So thanks for that. But also, oh, now wow. it's dismembered after dark podcast. Oh no. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Don't know how to segue to that one. Um, do you, so so now that we've thought about you being disabled and put this now that I put this hypothetical in your head has it has it made you think about things differently has it brought up any questions for you any thoughts for you um it's brought up some stuff I wouldn't tell you if we weren't recording <laughs> and I'm not sure how you would react to it but it you know re re uh, involves revealing things that I don't think when I press off we'll continue that conversation <laughs> we'll have a private sidebar yeah um there are some aspects of my sexuality that I think uh, would align uh, or, or not be disrupted too severely uh, if indeed I were disabled. 
We'll just put it that way. Cool. My brain just went to like 10 places. <laughs> but I'll leave it as it is. Um, do you think that this conversation will change how you do your podcast or column or any of that good stuff? Well, I'm, I'm certainly making mental notes as I go, particularly about that, you know, the assumption of ability being less grounded, you know, less probable than the assumption of heterosexuality. I'm comfortable with the assumption of heterosexuality because it's a reasonable assumption, barring any other data coming at you from a person. Um, it's not always 100% accurate, but nothing is. Uh, but we move through the day making assumptions, um, and they're valid based on you know how reasonable or probable they are. But I have this assumption uh, around ability that I think I need to uh, sit with and remind myself of as as I dig through the letters. Uh, a pointer for you, just as because I've been on your show and and hearing you say that a lot. My suggestion for you would be to instead of going to the word ability, mm-hmm. I would I would suggest using the word disability more, not in any kind of like like. Instead of using the word ability, use disability. Yeah, because I think that will. I hate to use the word normalize because it makes me feel cringy and weird, but it will normalize the fact that. Disability is is its own culture and is its own idea and is its own space that doesn't mm-hmm. ha- that doesn't have to be connected to that doesn't always have to be connected to what you're able to do and not able to do. It can be what, just what it is. So I think when you're going through those letters and when you're going through like people's voicemails about possible disability, it might be. An option to just say to instead of saying oh yeah something something ability or you can look at your abilities this way try just saying you can look at your disabilities this way it might change the course of the conversation so th- that makes disability its own uh, bedrock what's the word I'm looking for here that makes disability its own baseline yeah as opposed to always holding ability up as the baseline and other things as you know at some point short of that baseline. The yeah. disability itself can be a, a place a person exists wholly. Disability is, and so many disability, disabled activists will tell you exactly that, that it, that it is its own place, it is its own world, it, it is its own culture. So, I, and I just think saying disability out loud for what it is as a word that isn't like scary, that, isn't, that doesn't have to be minimum, because people say all the time like, oh, you're differently abled, oh, you're handy capable oh you're whatever you are it's like okay those are nice euphemisms but the word you're really trying to say is i'm disabled right (laughs) (laughs) yeah differently able drove me crazy in the late 80s when that was first trotted out i i I found that insulting but of course it was i think up to disabled people to (laughs) really uh, tear that down and i'm glad that you don't hear that anymore because it just felt so condescending and patronizing. It's still there. It's still out there. Um, I've had it used for, to describe me a few times. So I had to be like, oh, no, let's start again. And so that's why I go, I do a, a 180 the other way where I'll do like, okay, no, call me cripple. Call me this because I want to, I guess, shock and awe people, but also. Would like, it be comfortable if somebody like came to me and said, well, you're differently heterosexual. <laughs> I'm homosexual. Yeah, that makes it sound really. That makes it sound really, really weird. It does. Um, I have run out of questions for you. 
because I'm curious to hear about what you're going to say when I hit off. But <laughs> um, you have to promise to stop recording when I hit off. I will. I will hit. I've just set the mic, the mouse up, so that the minute you say we're done, we're done. But I. This was so fun, and thank you so much for interrogating this question with me and for willing to come on and think about this. Um, it, it was a real pleasure, um, and I really admire your activism, and I. I think you have a terrific voice. Um, it, it, it is so in the tradition of like in your face, queer, radical social politics and transformation, like to just put it right in front of people. Um, and I think that, that you're doing amazing work. Thank you. And, and that's kind of how I also am, am in the bedroom, just in case anyone's wondering, <laughs> I'm very much, I will put it right in front of you and figure out what to do with it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So on that note. How do people get a hold of you? Uh, you can find the Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. Um, my column, Savage Love, appears in 70, 80 papers. I don't remember last time I checked. Uh, but my home paper is The Stranger, and you can go to thestranger.com slash savage and find my column, find my podcast, find the Savage Love Letter of the Day, uh, and other writings and my speaking gigs and stuff. Um, it's all there. Sure, and I'll make sure that all of that is... Of course, in the show notes, and when this comes out, I don't know when it'll be, in probably a few weeks, I will make sure you're tagged everywhere and and all that great stuff. Um, Thanks. Yeah, this is great. So, Dan Savage, thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark, and I will talk to you in 20 seconds after I hit off. <laughs> thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. Thanks, Dan. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza, and thank you so much for listening and helping the show go. I really appreciate that you all listen and that you come back every week, and I love doing it, and I love shining a bright light on these topics, so thank you. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com where you'll find my writings, some cool videos I've been in, and you'll see where I've been talking where I've been doing talks, and if you want to hire me to talk, you can do so there as well. If you want to follow me on the social media, you can put in all my handles on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at TheAndrewGerza. If you want to follow the podcast specifically, you can follow us on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash DisabilityAfterDark. This show is a completely independent production. I literally record the show here in my bedroom in Toronto, and that's awesome. So if you want to support this fully independent program, you can head over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark, and you can pledge $1 a month to get the show early and get really cool perks like that, and I, I will give you a shout-out on the air, and thank you for your support. It would be super awesome if you could also leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast so that this show, all about sexuality and disability, something we don't talk about enough, can get more traction and more people can hear about the show. Lastly, if you want to be a part of Disability After Dark, you can submit your suggestions, story ideas, or your minisodes to our email inbox, disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, we'll be back next time, right here on the program Shining a Bright Light on Sex and Disability, Disability After Dark.
New episodes of Disability After Dark will be available every Thursday on your favorite podcast app. Also available to Patreon subscribers one day early on every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations with music by Chris Ujiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2019.